So like I said, not supposed to have a vaginal delivery when you have a previa, but there are some things to know about this. So if you get diagnosed with a previa, let's say at week 20 or week 18, when you have your anatomy scan, there is a good chance that your placenta can move, right? Because your uterus gets bigger with your pregnancy. And when that happens, your placenta can move alongside, okay? So sometimes it moves in the right direction. It goes up and it grows away from your cervix. Sometimes it moves in the opposite direction and it grows, you know, closer to your cervix and more over your cervix. You're listening to the Mommy Labor Nurse Podcast, where you'll gain the knowledge and confidence you need to erase the unknowns of pregnancy and birth and rock the newborn days like a boss. My name is Liesl Team. I'm a fellow mom, labor and delivery nurse, and your host. Each week on this podcast, you'll hear a mix of birth stories, expert interviews, and other fun pregnancy and birth-related content. As a reminder, anything you hear on this podcast is not medical advice please see mommylabornurse.com slash disclaimer for more details. And now let's get into this week's episode. In this episode of the Mommy Labor Nurse podcast, we are going to talk all about, guess what? Your placenta and the umbilical cord. So the placenta is a pancaked shape organ. It's kind of crazy. If you've never seen one in person, they're pretty wild looking. <laughs> so it's this pancake shaped organ that develops during pregnancy and it's attached to your uterine wall. It provides oxygen, blood, and nutrients to your growing baby or babies. Sometimes you have two placentas if you have two babies in there. And side note, yeah, sometimes you have two placentas if you have two babies in there and sometimes you have one placenta and they both share that one placenta. Okay, so it provides oxygen, blood, and nutrients to your growing baby or babies while also eliminating waste products. Baby is connected to the placenta via the umbilical cord, a flexible cord of tissue that brings oxygen, blood, and nutrients from mama to baby. In this episode, you will learn all about the placenta potential cut, that is a mouthful, all about the placenta potential complications. I didn't know placenta and potential, I guess they don't quite rhyme, but they're pretty similar words. (laughs) So you'll learn about potential complications, how it's expelled and more. We're also going to cover umbilical cords so that you understand what's normal and what's not with baby's cord as well. So let's dive right in. Wondering what you need to do to stay on track during each week of pregnancy? Not sure what you need to be learning or researching along the way? I can help. Sign up for our free weekly pregnancy series to get tips, advice, and resources tailored to your exact week of pregnancy sent straight to your inbox every week. Sign up at mommylabornurse.com slash I am pregnant to get your first email today. See you in your inbox real soon. Hello guys. Okay. So let's talk about your placenta and your umbilical cord today. That crazy organ that grows inside of you when you get pregnant. If you've never seen a placenta before, it looks pretty crazy. (laughs) I remember the first time I saw one in nursing school after I saw like my first live birth and, you know, I'd seen them in like medical textbooks before in nursing school, but yeah, they're just, they're wild. (laughs) 
So the placenta is a pancake-shaped organ that develops during your pregnancy, and it's attached to your uterine wall, okay? It provides oxygen, blood, and nutrients to your growing baby while also eliminating waste products. Baby is connected to your placenta via their umbilical cord, which is a flexible cord of tissue that brings oxygen, blood, and nutrients from mama, from you to baby. So in this podcast, I am going to talk about your placenta and possible complications that you might have with your placenta, how it comes out of you and more. Okay. We're also going to talk about the umbilical cord and, you know, potential complications that you might have with that, what's normal and what's not, and just kind of debunk some myths as well. All right. So what is the placenta? Like I said, pancake-shaped organ that your body grows on its own during pregnancy. It's located in your uterus and it attaches to your growing baby via their umbilical cord. It is what's responsible for providing baby with everything that they need while in utero. The placenta does this by supplying nutrients, eliminating fetal waste products, and enabling gas exchange via the maternal blood supply. It's really one of the only disposable organs, if you think about it, right? Like there's not really many organs in your body that you can just kind of like get rid of once you're done with them. I guess like your tonsils is another organ. I'm trying to think of other organs like that, but it's really one of the only disposable organs because once your body is done with it, you know, it expels it. And I compared it to your tonsils, but I guess it's not really comparable to your tonsils because your body doesn't get rid of your tonsils when like you're done with your tonsils. All right. So your placenta has two sides. Okay. It has the maternal side and this side is dark red in color. Okay. And it's made up of many lobes, which adhere to the uterine wall. It's really beefy. It kind of looks like a big chunk of ground beef, if I'm being quite honest. (laughs) And then it has the fetal side. Okay. And this side is shiny in appearance and it's where baby is connected by the umbilical cord to the placenta within the placental sac. So fun fact, your placenta holds approximately 150 milliliters of maternal blood that is renewed three to four times per minute. That's quite a lot if you think about 150 milliliters. So that's about four ounce, well, five ounces, I guess, and it's renewed three times per minute. So it goes in and out of there pretty quickly. All right, so when does the placenta actually form? So the placenta starts forming very soon after your fertilized egg implants into your uterus, and it almost immediately starts secreting the hormone HCG. But it takes until between weeks 10 and 12 for it to be fully functioning and take over providing for baby, okay? This is a big reason why the first trimester is often so exhausting and nausea is so horrible because your body developing the placenta takes a lot of energy and until it fully takes over the production of a lot of other crucial hormones to sustain your pregnancy, including like progesterone, your body's like working in overdrive to produce these hormones, okay? So this explains why when she hit that second trimester, a lot of people have that like boost of energy and a lot of their first trimester symptoms really diminish. And one important thing to note is that your placenta continues to grow for the entirety of your pregnancy. It's usually fully mature at about week 34, and it has a final weight of about one pound. Yeah. Okay, so let's briefly talk about twin pregnancies because I get this question a lot like, okay, wait, 
if you have twins, do you have two placentas or you have one placenta and they're connected? So it really, you know, it depends on what kind of twins you are. Okay. So there's a few types of twins that you can have die, die twins, modi twins, or momo twins. Okay. Die, die twins have two amniotic sacs and two placentas. Okay. And they can either be fraternal or identical. Die, die twins usually also have the lowest risk of complications because they each, if you think about it, like they're each their own entity, you know, and their placentas can either be fused or they can be separate. Okay. So technically there's like, I said three, but there's really four types of twins because there are these die-die twins, but their placentas can be like fused together. And die-die twins are the most common types of twins. So then modi twins are the next type and they can only be identical. These babies share one placenta. Okay. So there's one placenta, but they have two amniotic sacs. Okay. And so because they have that shared blood supply with the placenta, they are at an increased risk for certain complications. Okay. So that's like the second one down. And then in terms of it being risky. So if you have die-die twins, you're least likely to have complications during your pregnancy. And then modi twins is that next step. And then momo twins is the last one. And these types of twins are at the highest risk of complications because they share, it's like all in one, right? Okay. So they share one placenta, one amniotic sac. Okay. So these twins can only be identical, just like modi twins, and they are also the rarest kinds of twins. Okay, so where is your placenta located? Like, where is it? I told you it was in your uterus, but like, where is it in your uterus? Is it like attached to your baby or is it? Not? No, <laughs> I'm just kidding. All right, so there can be a few different areas where your placenta can be attached to your uterus, okay? So let's talk about a few of them. So there's a fundal placenta, and this is usually the most common. This is when the placenta is attached kind of like to the top of your uterus. That's what your fundus is called, okay? And it's often classified as a posterior fundus, posterior fundal or anterior fundal, depending on if it's more like towards the back of your uterus would be posterior, or if it's towards the front of your uterus, it would be anterior. Okay. And then there's a true posterior placenta and a true anterior placenta. Okay. And if you think about like your uterus is, I'm like drawing a shape. I know you guys can't see it, but think about your uterus is kind of like an oval shape and that fundal part is like at the top. So the anterior portion is on your belly button side. Okay. And then the posterior position is like on your backside. Okay. So a true posterior placenta is when your placenta is located at the back of your uterus, okay, against your own back. And I think there's been a few studies that say that posterior placentas mean that you will feel the most movement from baby. And it's also thought that baby will get into the most optimal position for birth the most easily, okay? Consequently, with anterior placentas, that's when it's located in the front, okay? A true anterior placenta is located right in the front. And like I said, on the contrary, those have been shown to be the most difficult. Like if your placenta is anterior, it's more difficult for a baby to get in that optimal position for birth. Okay. And that is, there's been like a couple studies that I've seen that have said that. Now, granted, if your provider's telling you that you have an anterior placenta, I don't want you to get all worried or anything. But they've just seen that it's a little bit harder possibly for baby to get into that optimal position. It makes sense because like it's kind of taking up a little bit more room because it's like on the front wall of your uterus. 
Another thing with anterior placentas is it's typically harder to feel baby's movements initially. So if you, you know, your provider has said, oh, you have an anterior placenta, you might feel movements quite a bit later, like 22, 23 weeks. And then when you do start to feel movements, they might kind of be muffled. Okay. Cause that placenta is right in the way. It's like a big old cushion. With that said, okay, all three of these are normal places for your placenta to develop and do not pose any risk to having a vaginal delivery, okay? So let's talk about previous now, okay? So we've talked about where placentas can adhere to your uterine wall. That's like a quote unquote normal position, okay? And then a previa is when your placenta covers your cervical opening, okay? And when you have a previa, you can't have a vaginal delivery, okay? Because that placenta is in the way. It's blocking the opening. And it can be dangerous for your uterus to start contracting with your placenta that is covering your cervix. Basically what happens is your uterus can start contracting and because it's covering that cervix, it can tear off of your uterine wall easier. And that is what we call a placental abruption. And that can be detrimental for babies. That's why they, you know, really, you know, it's not safe to have a vaginal birth with a previa. But with that said, there are a few different types of previas. Okay. There's partial previa, complete previa, marginal previa, and then there's something just called a low-lying placenta. Okay. And that is when your placenta is like not even touching the cervix. It's not even considered a previa, but it's just really, really low lying. Okay. So when we talk about previas, partial previa, this is just what it sounds like. Partial previa is when your placenta is partially covering the cervix. A complete previa is when it's fully covering your cervix. And then a marginal previa is when it's just like touching your cervix. And these can be all seen on ultrasound, which is pretty cool. So like I said, not supposed to have a vaginal delivery when you have a previa, but there are some things to know about this. So if you get diagnosed with a previa, let's say at week 20 or week 18, when you have your anatomy scan, there is a good chance that your placenta can move, right? Because your uterus gets bigger with your pregnancy. And when that happens, your placenta can move alongside, okay? So sometimes it moves in the right direction. It goes up and it grows away from your cervix. Sometimes it moves in the opposite direction and it grows, you know, closer to your cervix and more over your cervix. But typically, if you reach week 37, okay, and you still have a previa, you will be scheduled for a C-section. In cases of severe vaginal bleeding or other complications earlier in your pregnancy before 37 weeks, you may deliver prior to 37 weeks. But, you know, if you still have a previa at 37 weeks and you haven't had any complications, then you'll be scheduled for a C-section. Okay, so let's talk about a few complications. So I touched on placental abruptions briefly, but let's talk about them a little bit more. So placental abruption is a medical emergency that occurs when part of your placenta detaches from your uterine wall, remember before birth, okay? And most often it occurs in the third trimester, but it can happen anytime after week 20, okay? Placental abruptions can be partial. It can just kind of partially rip off of your uterine wall, or they can be complete. And then they're also classified as mild versus severe, okay? Mild abruptions occur when just a small part of the placenta detaches. These usually really don't cause any severe issues. It might not even be diagnosed at all. And then severe placental abruptions occur when a big part or all of your placenta detaches from your uterine wall, okay? Mild abruptions, especially prior to 30, 
for weeks. If you do even have symptoms, they are treated just with a hospital stay or home bed rest and careful monitoring. And then for complete or severe abruptions, birth is the best treatment. Obviously, your baby can't sustain life without a placenta. So if your placenta is you know, fully detached, we got to get that baby out real, real quick, right? Or if it's like almost all the way attached, it's not getting very much blood supply. So we need to give birth very, very quickly. So if baby is in distress, like let's say this happens during labor and you're about to have a vaginal delivery and all of a sudden you have bleeding and you're already pushing, you can still have a vaginal delivery. But if for some reason you're in labor and your baby is all of a sudden in distress and you know, you're having a bunch of vaginal bleeding, then we'll have to have an emergency C-section. If for some reason this happens just during your pregnancy and it's not during labor at all, same, you would come in, you know, you'd have a bunch of vaginal bleeding and we would deliver you via emergency C-section. Okay, so the next complication I want to touch on is called a calcified placenta. So as you know, the placenta is the life source of your growing baby, as we've talked about, and it grows right along with baby until about week 34 to 36. But once your placenta reaches maturity, it often stays stable for a few weeks, and then it starts the calcification process, okay? And a calcified placenta is when it's like little small round calcium deposits start to build up and deteriorate your placenta gradually. And I've seen this, it happens a lot. And this is really just a naturally occurring process. And many babies are just born full term and they have placentas that we've seen with mild calcification. You can actually, when you look at the placenta after birth and you can feel it, you can like feel the little hard spots of the little deposits. But with that said, even though it is a normal, like naturally occurring process, complications can occur when your placenta begins calcifying before week 36, okay? Because it might be aging or dying off too quickly to continue sustaining baby. It makes sense, right? Because your placenta is responsible for sustaining baby. So if it starts, you know, having these calcium deposits too early, then we don't like that, right? So if your provider thinks baby is at risk due to a calcified placenta, you may have to have an emergency C-section or an induction, you know, if you and baby are stable. Calcified placentas are diagnosed via ultrasound. And in many cases, providers find this condition when moms come in and they say, I feel like my baby is not moving as much. I've been tracking my kick counts, but I feel like my baby's not moving as much. So that is why it's very important to do kick counts even towards the end of your pregnancy. All right, and the last complication that I wanted to touch on regarding placentas is called a placenta accreta. So a placenta accreta is a rare but very high-risk pregnancy complication where your placenta grows too deeply into your uterine wall, okay? In some cases, it actually invades the muscles of your uterus or it can grow all the way completely through it. So this is a high-risk complication because it means that the placenta can't detach, right? It's like grown way too far in there. So it can't normally detach from the uterine wall during the third stage of labor for expulsion. When you, right after you give birth, it's normal for your placenta, your body's like, hey, baby came out, I'm not pregnant anymore. So your body's like, okay, let me detach that placenta. But if it's grown too deep in that uterus, uh oh, it's not detaching very well. So this puts moms with placenta accretas at a very high risk for postpartum hemorrhages, right? Because your body's like, I'm trying to get rid of this thing. So it's sending blood, you know, a 
bigger blood supply to that placenta to try and like release it, but it's not happening. So you just keep bleeding and bleeding and bleeding. So you may be at higher risk of developing a placenta accretia if you have abnormalities in the lining of your uterus. Okay. This might be from a previous C-section or another uterine surgery. All right, the sound of that baby crying means it's time for this week's segment of Birth It Up Babies. All right, she says, I did it. I went all natural thanks to your course and resources. I was always open to an epidural, but being my second birth, I really wanted to try to see how far I could go this time. I labored for six hours, about three in the hospital. When I started feeling pressure, I asked to be checked. I was at an eight with a bulging bag. Not much time had passed before my water literally exploded everywhere on everything and baby was born with only four minutes of pushing. Woo, quick. I literally could not have done it without your course. I put all faith in my body to know what it was doing, and I did it. Thank you. Oh, I love that. Love it so much. All right. If you want to check out this course that this mama took, she took Birth It Up the Natural Series, and you can head over to mommylabornurse.com and click on the Natural Series. All right. Let's get right back into this week's episode. All right. Umbilical cords. So we've talked as much as we can possibly talk about your placenta. But now let's move on. Let's move down to that umbilical cord. So the umbilical cord typically contains two arteries and one vein, okay, which are protected and enclosed by a substance called Wharton's jelly. Isn't that crazy? Obviously with somebody's last name, right? That's the reason why it's called Wharton's jelly. Somebody named somebody Wharton. I should Google it right now. Let's Google it. Let's see why is... Wharton's jelly called Wharton's jelly. I don't know. We're going to learn together. See, you can Google anything these days. Well, this is via Wikipedia. Okay. So, I mean, you can count on Wikipedia for some things. <laughs> so, Wharton's jelly is named for the English physician and anatomist Thomas Wharton, 1614 to 1673. Wow. Okay. It says who first described it in his publication. I don't know how to say that word, and adenographia, or the description of the glands of the entire body. It first published in 1656. Who knew? That is a great trivia question. If anybody ever asks you that, you say, I learned on the Mommy Labor Nurse podcast that Wharton's jelly was by this guy named Thomas Wharton, and it was way back in the 1600s. Crazy. Okay, let's get back to the episode now. So it is enclosed by this substance called Wharton's jelly, okay? And the umbilical vein delivers oxygen and nutrient-rich blood to baby while the arteries return oxygen-poor blood away and back to the placenta for disposal. So it's basically like this, you know, chain, if you were to say, or this cord, right, that you get blood flow from the placenta that's nice and oxygen-rich and then baby takes it in and does what they need to do with it. And then they send it back through those two little arteries. So the umbilical cord usually attaches in the middle of your placenta and it's approximately 50 centimeters in length, but this can really vary. I mean, I've seen some crazy short umbilical cords and I've seen some crazy, crazy long umbilical cords. So additionally, along with your umbilical cord, it usually has some degree of coiling, okay? And when I say coiling, if you think about a slinky, okay, your umbilical cord isn't just a cord. It's kind of like that slinky where it kind of coils, okay? So that coiling is also really important because it helps the vessel avoid compression. So if you think about 
you know, squishing something that's flat, it's easier to squish. But if it's coiled, it's harder to like squish it because it has these coils, if that makes sense. So if your cord is also hypercoiled, okay, so it's like slinky. When I say slinky, a slinky is really hypercoiled. That can also be problematic too. We really want it kind of somewhere in the middle because if it's hypercoiled, it's like it's almost coiled like too much and the coiling can be detrimental. Like it doesn't have anything to do with the fact that it's protecting it from compression. The hypercoiling is the problem. All right, so let's talk about some complications with your umbilical cords. So there is a a condition called having a two-vessel cord, okay? So as we just talked about, typical umbilical cord contains two arteries and one vein, okay, for a total of one, two, three vessels, but there is a complication known as a two-vessel cord where there's only one artery and one vein present. You need at least one vein and one artery, but sometimes you don't have that second artery. These are typically diagnosed via ultrasound. They're often seen at that 18 to 20 week anatomy scan. And for some women, a two vessel cord diagnosis really isn't anything to get excited about. It doesn't make any difference at all. Baby still goes on to develop completely normally and you have a completely healthy pregnancy and there are no extra interventions needed or anything, but sometimes they can come with complications, okay? So some babies with a single artery are at increased risk or at an increased risk for birth defects, such as heart problems, kidney problems, or spinal defects. Babies with a two-vessel cord may also be at a higher risk for not growing properly in utero, which makes sense because there's not you know, as much back and forth blood flow going on. So this could include preterm delivery, IUGR, which is intrauterine growth restriction, or even stillbirth. If your provider does detect this two-vessel cord, you may have a higher resolution scan, okay, if you aren't getting one already, just so they can look a little bit closer at it. And then sometimes if they're really concerned about it, especially if you have other complications going on, they might recommend something called an amniocentesis or a fetal echocardiogram or additional genetic screenings. But if your provider doesn't suspect that baby is experiencing any adverse effects, you know, like I said, they may simply just recommend another ultrasound later in your pregnancy. This might be once a month or it might just be one your third trimester just to make sure that baby is growing on track. All right, let's talk about delayed cord clamping. So when we talk about the umbilical cord, gotta talk about delayed cord clamping, right? (laughs) So once your baby is born, delayed cord clamping just, it is what it sounds like. You just wait a little while to clamp the cord. So standard practice right now in most hospitals is to wait 60 seconds before clamping the cord. And most hospitals do this for every baby that is born unless baby needs immediate medical attention, right? In which case we would clamp and cut the cord immediately. But some people do choose to wait even longer, longer than that 30 seconds before the cord is cut. And allowing this extra time before clamping the cord can increase the blood volume in your baby by up to one third. That's why it's so great to do. So this extra blood volume provides baby with iron reserves for their first six to eight months of life. It improves developmental outcomes in the future. It increases their hemoglobin and hematocrit levels at birth. It increases brain myelination. It's all this great stuff. And what's more, 
in preterm babies, the benefits of delayed cord clamping are even greater. Okay. If you have a preemie, we really, really want to do that delayed cord clamping because it improves their transitional circulation. It establishes a better red blood cell. There's a better establishment of red blood cell volume. It's your baby is at a decreased need for a blood transfusion. And then there's also a lower incidence of necrotizing enterocolitis. Ooh, I said that right on the first try. (laughs) And intraventricular hemorrhage, which are two things that we don't want to happen. So after hearing all that, you'd be like, why wouldn't everybody just do delayed core clamping? Yeah. So delayed core clamping is great. And most hospitals now are doing that 60 seconds. And that's because after the 60 seconds, most cords are beginning to stop pulsating. Okay. And once the cord stops pulsating, there's really not a lot of benefit to keeping it intact because there's, you know, it's not pulsating anymore. So it's not like sending any more blood. But we've seen that after 60 seconds, like you're getting the most benefit, but you still can opt to delay it even more than that. So the only real downside to doing this delayed cord clamping is that ACOG does note that there is a small increase in the incidence of jaundice in term babies who do delayed cord clamping. But other than that, it's a really, really great intervention. Okay, so let's briefly touch on some other cord complications that might happen. So when we talk about umbilical cords, a hot topic is nuchal cords, okay? And that's when the baby gets the umbilical cord wrapped around its neck, okay? And this is probably something that you've heard about and you may even know somebody who this has happened to because it's actually quite common. It happens in about one out of three births. And even though the idea of having the cord wrapped around baby's neck, it seems super scary. In reality, the chance of any complications is actually really, really rare, which is good, right? Really, the most common complication that might occur occurs during labor, okay? So basically, when the cord is wrapped around baby's neck, it can be compressed during contractions, okay? Which in turn reduces the amount of blood and therefore oxygen that is getting to baby. And oftentimes, we see this during labor. We're monitoring you and we can see that complication during labor. Another complication, sometimes you can have knots in the umbilical cord. So this umbilical cord is really, really long. And sometimes baby likes to do some flips and swim around in there and it gets into a knot. So we consider this a risk to baby because it's a knot, right? So it can get really compressed and cut off blood supply to babies. But sometimes, just like nuchal cords, we see babies born with these true knots and they're completely healthy and they didn't pose any risk at all. All right, so one of the scariest complications involving umbilical cords is something called an umbilical cord prolapse, okay? And this is basically when the umbilical cord drops into the birth canal, into your vagina, before baby's head, okay? And sometimes, in some cases, during labor, especially, you can feel it in the birth canal, and it may even stick out of your vagina. I've even seen that before, especially with preemie moms. So this is very dangerous to baby because the cord can easily get compressed, right? And cut off blood flow to baby. It's pretty rare. It only happens in around one in 300 births. But if it does happen, we need to act quickly to get baby out, okay? Because it can result in brain damage, even fetal death if it's compressed for too long. So for some reason this ever happens to you, you call 911 immediately. If you're home and all of a sudden your water breaks and there's a cord, you know, coming out of your vagina, make sure you call 911. So typically the most common cause of cord prolapse is when your water breaks, but 
it's before you're actually in labor. Okay. And that happens all the time. So I don't say that to scare you, but sometimes that happens and your baby's way, way too high and the umbilical cord is right underneath the baby's head. And so when the water breaks, the umbilical cord comes out. A few other risks for cord prolapse include like if your baby's breech, if you have multiples, preterm labor, if you have too much amniotic fluid, right? Because there's just a lot of space in there for that cord to fall underneath the head and prolonged labor. All right. So what happens if this happens? So we want to get baby out as fast as possible. Okay. We'll have you try to change positions to get pressure off the cord. Usually what we'll do is if, especially if we find it during a cervical check, We'll insert two fingers into your vagina and just try to push baby's head up slightly, okay, in hopes to relieve some of that pressure. And then we just ride down the hall together, my hands inside your vagina, (laughs) holding that baby up into the OR, and we go for an emergency C-section. This is the last complication that I'm going to talk about in regards to umbilical cord. Umbilical cords is something called a velamentous cord insertion. And then within that, we'll talk about vasa previous as well. Okay. So essentially a velamentous cord insertion is when the cord is attached to your bag of water instead of your placenta, right? So in normal anatomy, your umbilical cord is attached to the placenta, but sometimes with this velamentous cord insertion, it's attached to your bag of water. So the exposed vessels are not covered with any of that Wharton's jelly. Okay, so they are more prone to rupture and compression. This is also pretty rare. It occurs in about 1% of all pregnancies, a higher likelihood if you have twins. And sometimes it's apparent on ultrasound before delivery, but sometimes it's not. Sometimes you have your baby and then afterwards we're looking at your placenta and we're like, oh my gosh, you had a velamentous cord insertion. So if for some reason your provider does diagnose it during your pregnancy, they will want to monitor you closely for the presence of something called a vasa previa, okay? And so a vasa previa, remember we talked about previas at the beginning of the episode where a placenta previa is when your placenta is covering your cervix. So guess what a vasa previa is? It's when your umbilical cord vessels are covering the cervix. So again, this is a high-risk complication that you would need to have a C-section because your baby, it's not safe to deliver a baby, you know, through your vagina if your umbilical cord vessels are blocking the opening. All right, so let's talk about how that placenta comes out of you. Okay, so the third stage of labor is when your placenta leaves your body. Bye-bye, placenta. (laughs) After the birth of your baby, you're left with your placenta up in the amniotic sac at the top of your uterine wall. Okay, so like baby comes out and then we'll do a little delayed cord clamping. Then we'll cut that umbilical cord and then the umbilical cord is hanging out of you and the placenta is just up there chilling, you know, still attached to your uterine wall. So once your placenta detaches, it comes out with the amniotic sac, okay, which was housing baby and the placenta. And most of the time directly after you have a vaginal delivery, your placenta will come out just on its own with no intervention needed. But occasionally women will experience something called a retained placenta, okay? And this is when the placenta doesn't come out for more than 30 minutes. And some practices, this is, I'm in the U.S., so I'm saying what it is here in the U.S. in most areas. But some practices do allow to wait up to 60 minutes to have that placenta detach. So the reason why this can be dangerous is because you can lose a lot of blood during this time because your body is like sending blood to get that placenta to detach and it's not detaching. So your body just keeps sending blood. In fact, 
A retained placenta is one of the four leading causes of postpartum hemorrhage, okay? If on the off, you know, on the off chance your placenta is retained, there are a few ways that we can deal with it, okay? Sometimes your provider can just administer a medication to try and increase strength and contractions to help your body naturally expel the placenta. But if this isn't effective quickly enough and or the bleeding is already a concern, your provider may have to reach up into your uterus with a gloved hand, okay, and remove your placenta manually. And this is not fun. I've seen it happen a number of times and it is it is not fun at all. So I'm very sorry if this has to happen. So occasionally just your provider doing that at the bedside doesn't work. They typically will just do that. You know, if it's been 30 minutes and you're starting to have this extra bleeding, they'll say, okay, give you some pain medicine, but it's still not super fun. But say, okay, let's give you some pain medicine and your provider reaches up and grabs it with their hand. But sometimes that doesn't work. Okay. And you'll have to have a DNC, a dilation and curatage right after delivery. And that is typically done in the operating room. We have a procedure room that's that's done in. But yeah, unfortunately, if the bedside one is not successful, you would have to have a surgical treatment to remove that placenta. So having a retained placenta, it's rare, but it's not as rare as some of the other things that we've talked about. It happens in approximately 0.6% to 3.3% of women, okay? And your risk does increase if you're experiencing a stillbirth or you're having uh, a preterm delivery. Okay, so the last thing we're going to talk about is placenta encapsulation. This is also a hot topic. So the act of consuming the placenta has been practiced for centuries. However, it is very controversial. (laughs) 70 to 80% of moms who choose to consume their placentas choose encapsulation, but it can be eaten raw, although not recommended. You can cook it or you can dehydrate it or you can even roast it. There's a lot of things you can do with it, but the safest way to do it is to choose encapsulation. So placenta encapsulation involves steaming the placenta, drying it out, and then grinding it up into a powder and placing it into capsules. There have been a few studies done on the risks and benefits of placenta encapsulation. However, most of the information that we have still is quite anecdotal. And I'm going to confuse you with these potential benefits and risks because a lot of these are the same. So potential benefits that have been found from these evidence-based studies include increased milk supply, restoration of blood iron levels, increased release of oxytocin, (laughs) which can help the uterus return to the normal size, okay, and encourages bonding with baby. It has been shown to possibly decrease your likelihood of developing postpartum depression and an increase in corticotropin-releasing hormones, which is a stress-reducing hormone. So those are some benefits. Potential risks include, you know, your placenta can harbor bacteria, right? Okay, so it can make you and your baby sick if you ingest it, and it can make your baby sick if you're breastfeeding. Another risk is exposure to environmental toxins that accumulate in your placenta during your pregnancy, lower milk supply. So that's confusing. Like I said, this might be confusing because the potential benefit is increased milk supply, but it's also been shown that there might be a risk of decreased milk supply. So the placenta does contain progesterone, which may inhibit the production of prolactin, which is a you know needed hormone that helps you make milk. There also is an increased risk of blood clots, and it can possibly cause jitteriness and dizziness. 
If you do choose to consume your placenta, make sure that it is handled safely by placing it on ice immediately after delivery, okay? If you do choose to cook it, cook it thoroughly before you consume it. And they're really, here in the United States, there are no laws governing the practice of placenta encapsulation. So if you do choose to do this, it's important to do adequate research on your own and choose a company that you're certain will handle your placenta safely. All right. That was a fun little episode. It got really into talking about your placenta. We learned about your umbilical cord. We learned about Wharton's jelly and where that came from. (laughs) So if you enjoyed this episode, leave me a review or leave me a comment and say, hey, Liesl, I really like that episode about placentas. That was really interesting. I want you to do more on those. We can talk about other organs in your body or just other subjects like this. So yeah, see you next week. All right, guys, that wraps up this week's episode. Thank you so much for tuning in and letting me be a part of your motherhood journey. It is truly an honor. If you like what you heard, don't forget to hit that subscribe button so you never miss an episode. And I love hearing what you guys think of the podcast. So if you're liking what you hear or you have a suggestion, I'd be so grateful if you'd go ahead and leave me a review wherever you're listening to help more mamas just like you find the show. What do you think? Are you starting to feel a little more confident about your pregnancy and birth? Well, if you want more, be sure to head on over to mommylabornurse.com slash podcast for today's show notes and a library of episodes so you can keep getting educated before your upcoming birth. And while you're over there, be sure to check out the blog and learn about our online birth classes. Find it all and more over at mommylabornurse.com slash podcast. See you next week. Same time, same place. America, we are endowed by our creator with certain unalienable rights, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. At Grand Canyon University, we believe in equal opportunity, and the American dream starts with purpose. By honoring your career calling, you impact your family, your friends, and your community. The pursuit to serve others is yours. Find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. Private. Christian. Affordable. Visit gcu.edu.